Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, as we uh, come around your word this morning, we pray for your blessing. We pray that you'll uh, show us yourself, that you'll uh, encourage us and inspire us and teach us more about what it means and what it's like to follow you in this life in which you've placed us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do uh, want to start with just mentioning the elephant in the room. And that is that um, after this um, service, we'll be having a congregational meeting and we'll be making some decisions about the future of this faith community. Uh, We basically have two choices. Uh, One is to uh, discontinue and uh, disband as a congregation, and the other one is to continue. Whatever choice we make, it's going to uh, be painful. Obviously, the, uh, the decision to close will be a pretty painful one for all of us, some of us more than others, but it's not going to be an easy one, the easy road if we make that choice. But neither will be continuing. If we choose to continue, it means that things will need to change. And um, changing is not always easy, and changing can be painful. Changing also means transition, also means loss. It's also a kind of a death that you go through. So whatever we do, whichever way we go, we're not looking at an easy road. And just a little bit as preparation for that, and we'll still be continuing for a couple more weeks, I've been um, looking with you on Sunday morning from uh, Paul's letter, to second letter to the Corinthians, which, as you heard a couple weeks ago, is actually his fourth. There are two letters of his that we do not have. And this is a letter, more than really any other letter in the New Testament, that that is born in crisis. It's born in the crisis of the church, the Corinthian church. It's also born in Paul's crisis as a person, as a minister, as an apostle. And Paul's very open about that in the, in the letter. The last two weeks, we've, we've noted some of those things. He speaks about conflict. He speaks about grief. He speaks about loss. He speaks about relationship struggles. He speaks about doctrinal issues. The whole thing, of course, is couched in the relationship of of these Christians, Jews and Gentiles, to the Roman Empire. How is that all going to work out? And how are Jews and Gentiles going to work together? And Paul is also very personal. He talks about his own exhaustion. He talks about his own weakness. He talks about his own distress, his troubles, his hardship, his sorrow. He's facing the pressure of concern for these people whom he, whom he loves. So it's in that kind of crisis that this letter is born, and it's, and it's why we're looking at it, because we're asking the question, what does Paul do in this crisis or these crises? How does he handle himself? And more importantly, what's his perspective? What's his it quotes, world and life view. Those of you who went through Christian schools or colleges probably heard that term, your world and life view. What's your world and life view? When you face crisis, what's your framework? What's your paradigm? What's 
the narrative, the story that you tell yourself or that you tell others? How do you face whatever crisis it is in your life or in our lives? And how does Paul operate in such a way that he just doesn't throw in the towel and head off into something else or retirement or whatever it is? What's his, what's his perspective? And today we're going to look at uh, uh, chapter 5, just some select verses from there. This is a, a very pretty well-known uh, passage if you've grown up in the church, and it's pretty complex, and obviously we don't have the time, and I don't even have the intellect uh, to go into it in every detail. So we're just going to be pulling some things out of it. But um, I, I think this is a very helpful passage in terms of giving us uh, Paul's perspective. So we're going to start with 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 to 15, should be projected on the wall, or feel free, of course, to look it up on your own Bible or device. Starting with verse 13, and of course I'm breaking, I'm jumping now into the middle of thought, but there's, there's no other way to do it with this letter, with most of Paul's writings, in fact. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. The Another version, this is the um, English Standard Version. The New International Version is a little more blunt. Paul says, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And frankly, I have no idea what that means. I have no clue what he means by that. I... Again, you have to be somebody smarter than me to figure that out. I'm not sure it's possible, but anyway. But it gives a little indication of, of where Paul, he's like out of his mind. He's like, I don't know. I'm, things are wacky here. And I'm not even sure how I'm doing. And I'm not sure why or what, what framework. And, and, and we've, we've had this kind of expression before uh, in Paul. And, of course, the very first Sunday a couple weeks ago, I told you my favorite life verse, which I won't repeat now. Hopefully you all remember it. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, complex sentence. But Paul looks at, him, looks at himself, and he looks at the church, and he looks at the society around him. He says, this I know. It's the love of Christ that controls us. It's that candle back there. It's the love of Christ that stands central. The love of Jesus Christ. And again, this whole past year, a year ago, we were going through the Gospel of John. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you don't want to know what love is like, you look at Jesus. And how does Jesus show his love according to Paul? Well, he died. See how Paul focuses in on the death of Christ. He has died for all. One has died for all. 
He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their their sake died and was raised. Paul roots and centers his world and life view, his paradigm, his narrative, the way he looks at crises and crisis in the death, the crucifixion of Christ. And remember, the death of Christ is the crucifixion. The most accursed way of dying, especially for the Jewish people, one of the most painful, most agonizing ways of dying, one of the most shameful ways of dying. This isn't Socrates raising the the glass of hemlock. (laughs) This is a collision with empire, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of empire. And Jesus hanging naked on that cross, beaten and tortured and mocked and scorned and rejected and in unmeasurable agony at every level. That's the love of Jesus Christ, this crucifixion. And I think what what Paul is trying to say in a theme that, 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 that shows up in the New Testament very often is this theme that it's out of death comes life. In John chapter 12, Jesus mentions that twice, and I'm going to project them for you. John 12, 24, and most of you probably know this verse. Truly, truly, says Jesus, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul is saying this death of Jesus is like this seed that's planted in the earth. And it looks like it's dead. Looks like it's going to die. It looks like it's not going to survive. And then out of that seed comes this, comes this fruit of whatever kind it is. And then a little bit later in the same chapter, Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he's referring here to his crucifixion, his death and crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. For those of you counting the alls in the New Testament, here's another one. When I am lifted up, when I die, when I go through that crucifixion, that will be the way that I draw all people to myself. So Paul has this fundamental perspective that's rooted in this, I'm using the word narrative, but by that I don't mean that it's not true, that it didn't happen. This narrative that Jesus, God, came among us, dwelt among us in flesh, full of grace and truth, and died and was buried. And in that dying and being buried, brought forth and is bringing forth this huge amount of fruit and reconciling the world to himself. We're going to get to that in a second. And drawing all men to himself. And that's Paul's fundamental Image, his fundamental paradigm, his framework, his world and life view as he looks at crisis of whatever kind on whatever level, from the personal inside his own heart to that of the Roman Empire. That's where he starts. And from Jesus' death comes reconciliation. Read further. 2 Corinthians uh, 
5.16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, he is a new, he is, a, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And hang there for a second, if you will, Peter. Thank you. By the way, is the recording on? Okay, great. Um, notice here that there's a, something new happening. Following this idea of this death of the seed bringing life. Now that Jesus has died and risen again, we regard no one according to the flesh like we used to. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, th we thought he was just a man. We don't even do that anymore. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new something happening a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Again, because Jesus died and rose again, the old has passed away and the new has come. See, this, this, this is part of Paul's paradigm, his way of looking at life in the midst of crisis. And then he goes further. We'll go ahead, Peter. Thank you. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, just a little excursion here for the nerds. Look carefully at this text. God is through Christ reconciling us to himself, and in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. So the question is, who's being reconciled here? And probably most of you, most of us, grew up with the idea that it was God that needed to be reconciled. God is angry with us because of our sin. Something needs to happen so that God's attitude toward us will change. And I'm suggesting to you that that's not what this text says. It does not say God is being reconciled to us, right? It says we are being reconciled to him. God's attitude, his disposition toward us, his fundamental disposition toward us is always one of love and reconciliation. The Bible speaks of the wrath of God and there's a place for it. But that's not what this is about. God is in Christ reconciling us, changing us, moving in us, Drawing all of us to himself so that we will change, not that he will change. And the reason why I'm so convinced of this is the story of the prodigal son, which I'm sure all of you know. 
Fairly wealthy father, two sons. One son says, Father, I want half of the inheritance. I want to take off. I want to live my life. So the father gives it to him. The son goes off, wastes all the money, ends up in a pig pen, ends up in brokenness, ends up in crisis, comes back home. And is the father angry with him? Is it the father that needs to be reconciled? No. The father's been standing on the porch of that home every single day, hoping and praying and waiting for his son to go home. The disposition of the father toward the son has never changed. The person who needs to be changed in the story is the son. It's us that need to be reconciled. And we need reconciliation on all kinds of levels. We need personal reconciliation, even sometimes with ourselves. But I'm just not in a good place myself. Relational with each other, with my partner, my husband, my wife, my children, my parents, my grandchildren, my uncle, my aunts, my friends, colleagues, schoolmates, fellow church members. We need reconciliation with our community. You all know this in our schools, our churches, our local governments, our organizations. Brokenness all over the place. Not to mention worldwide, the wars, the refugees, slave labor, poverty, disease. And not to mention, I've talked about this a lot over the last years, our brokenness with creation. We've exploited, we've used, we've used up, we've destroyed. And we're living now in a state of, of, of unreconciliation to make up a word with our creation. In all those ways, we need reconciliation. And God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. There's no greater example of what this reconciliation looks like than Bishop Desmond Tutu. He's just the best. If you don't know anything about him, um, look him up anyway, uh, bishop in South Africa. Listen to what he said, and you can read it too. It's maybe a little small. hope you can read it. Forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It is not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile, because in the end only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. So Paul, in his crises, and Desmond Tutu in his crises, and us in our crises, 
we look at Jesus and we look at his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we see that as the seed that's planted, that's bearing fruit, that in Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. And I believe that also includes the creation. It's reconciling the world to himself. And it's risky. It's difficult. It involves confrontation. It involves exposing the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, and the truth. Sometimes it may appear to make things worse. But it's all part of God's movement in Christ. That when Jesus is lifted up, he's drawing all men to himself, or as Colossians it says, all things are being reconciled to God because of Christ. And then, as we've said every week in the last three weeks, and we've been saying it, I've been saying it uh, for years here, this reconciliation that we experience in Christ is never just for yourself. 520. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And a little earlier, um, I have to look forward a second here. Um, yes, God, who through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So, God sent Jesus, he loves us, he sent Jesus, Jesus lived, died, buried, was raised again, is drawing the world to himself, is drawing each one of us and us as communities to himself. Always with the idea that we are ambassadors. We are ones who go into our world with the message, and not just the message of words, but with the the words and the deeds and the acts of, re of reconciliation on whatever level we need to do it. Whether that's the reconciliation that you need in your own heart, to whatever you can contribute to world peace and environmental wellness, the whole gamut. We're called and sent out to be ambassadors of this reconciliation. Another quote from Tutu. Our God is an expert at dealing with chaos, with brokenness, with all the worst that we can imagine. God created order out of disorder, cosmos out of chaos, and God can do so always, can do so now in our personal lives and in our lives as nations globally. Indeed, God is transforming the world now, and here it comes through us, because God loves us. God is transforming the world now through us because God loves us. And I just want to say to you all, whatever happens this afternoon in a little while, this truth remains. 
God is transforming the world through us in whatever form that takes. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that we might live and not die and be the seeds that go through the crisis, take the risks, face evil, be broken, and be changed. And then in all of the imperfect ways in which we can do it, because we still remain people, in all of the imperfect ways in which we do it, or you remember our image from Isaiah from a few months ago with charred lips. He had this coal on his lips with charred lips. He says, yes, Lord, I will go. God sends you out into the world which he has given you. But what is your worldview? What is your perspective as you handle whatever crisis it is and whatever crisis our decision of in a little while may throw you into? And I, I urge you, I implore you to keep your eyes on Jesus who went this way of sorrow and went into the death as a seed to bring forth fruit and to be reconciled to God first in whatever ways you need to do that, to be reconciled to one another in whatever ways you need to do that, and then to take that reconciliation and go into your Monday morning work, your Tuesday evening life, your Saturday afternoon sport, or whatever it is, and be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. There's no one who loves you more than God the Father. There's no one that knows you better than God the Father. The fact that he knows you does not mean that he doesn't love you. His disposition toward you never changes. God is immutable. It never changes. And it's out of that love that we can follow his leading and his call, whichever path it takes us, into fruitfulness that gives a way of living that hopefully might keep you from throwing in the towel. Amen.